So we have a name uh, in the English language to describe someone who is stingy, greedy, and grumpy. We refer to them as a Scrooge. Now, of course, the name Scrooge started as a proper name, Ebenezer Scrooge, from Charles Dickens' classic 1843 story, A Christmas Carol, a story that takes place on the cold, wet, dark streets of London on Christmas Eve. And yet, I I love this story because it is a story of transformation. It's a story of redemption. Now, now the tale begins with, with Scrooge just as a cold-hearted miser who absolutely hates Christmas. And so much so that as he's in his counting house on Christmas Eve, his nephew stops by simply to wish his uncle a Merry Christmas and invite him to Christmas dinner. And Scrooge responds by saying, if I could mark my will... If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Bah humbug. And so that evening, December 24th, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three spirits, three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, who's a jolly giant of a, of a guy who shows Scrooge what was. And then, of course, there's the ghost of Christmas present, a flickering light that illuminates what is. But when we get to the ghost of Christmas future, Charles Dickens does an eloquent job in describing the, the nature and, and Scrooge's fear of this spirit. He writes in the book, speaking of the ghost of Christmas future, the phantom slowly, gravely, and silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of its visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him and that its mysterious presence filled him with solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come, said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not yet happened, but will happen in time before us, Scrooge pursued. Is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds as if the spirit had inclined its head, and that was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. 
The spirit paused a moment as if observing his condition and gave him a moment to recover, but Scrooge was the worse for it. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud there were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him while, though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. Ghost of the future, he exclaimed, I fear you more than any specter I have seen, but I know your purpose is to do me good. As I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear your company and do it with a thankful heart. What a apt description of the future, shrouded in mystery, curiosity, See, what the ghost of Christmas future illuminates to Scrooge is that a life that is lived in all-consuming selfishness always ends in death, not just of the body, but of the soul. And so by the time the tale comes to a close, Ebenezer Scrooge is given a choice. One of the great gifts that we are given from God, our creator, is the freedom and the ability to choose. When my kids were little, I would drop them off at school in the morning and I would say two things to them. I first would say, daddy loves you. Make good choices. Now, when my daughter hit middle school, I added a third. I said, daddy loves you. Make good choices and don't talk to boys. But that's for a different day. Our life is what it is because of our choices. Even those things we cannot control, we do choose how we respond to them. So here we are gathered together on Christmas Eve and we're all faced with a choice and the choice is what will we actually do with Christmas? Where is Christmas going? Where is it headed? And is it going in the right direction? I mean, there are some that would say no, that Christmas is simply a time of stress and frustration, so much so that there are countless websites now dedicated to helping you navigate, helping me navigate the stresses of the holiday season. The stress that will come when the January credit card bill arrives. The the stress that I know I'm going to feel when I step on the scale, which will remind me of all the Christmas cookies that I ate that I shouldn't have. Matter of fact, this morning for breakfast, I had Christmas cookies. (laughs) And of course, there's the isolation, family tension. And for some of us, there's the dark despair of loss. Christmas has become such a time of tension that the American Heart Association has coined two phrases, the Merry Christmas Coronary and the Happy New Year Heart Attack. Because they've observed in one study that heart events go up starting at Thanksgiving and peak at New Year. So here's the tension. I wonder, has the culture of Christmas that we have created, has it eclipsed the simple message of what Christmas actually is? Because Christmas is rather simple. The message of Christmas is, well, it's easy to comprehend. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verse 10, there's a, a story, a scenario in which there are shepherds who are out in the field, minding their flock by night. I can almost see them. 
sitting over a fire, warming their hands, sipping whatever it is that shepherds in the first century sipped at night. And a host of angels appeared to them and they were terrified, but the angels said to them, do not be afraid because we bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. That is the message of Christmas. It's good news. I mean, remember the last time you received really good news? Like, what did you do with it? What do you do when you hear something that's just fantastic? Well, it usually causes great joy, at least in normal people. Joy is this emotion that wells up within us. I bring you good news that will cause great joy, not just for a select few, but for all people. So when we consider Christmas in the past, what we have is the nativity, the birth of Christ. That is the singular reason we celebrate and we've gathered. Yes, we have all the cultural trimmings, which is fine, but when we boil it down to its bare reality, we're left with a simple story that is good news that will cause great joy for all people. And that's the origin story of Christmas and the Christian faith. I mean, everything that is has an origin story. All of the cultural things we have at Christmas have origin stories. Like, take for instance, the simple candy cane. There are lots of, there are lots of stories and legends and tales about how the candy cane came about. Go ahead and pass those down. Good thing you guys sat in the front row. You guys get candy canes. Some say that the candy cane was shaped like a shepherd's crook because it reminds us of the shepherds at night that watched over their sheep. Oh, here's some children. You need a lot of sugar. I'm going to give you guys lots of sugar. like to make sure the kids go home happy. The story I love the most about the Christmas candy cane is told that in the 1600s there was a German choir master who wanted to keep the children in his choir quiet during the long Christmas Eve serve of the pastor. Now, I'm not implying anything by that. But he gave them peppermint sticks in order to keep them occupied during the Christmas service. Well, why we're gathered together today has its own origin story. It's told in Luke's gospel, which we heard a moment ago. And and in Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. The story starts rather simply. A young couple, Joseph and Mary. I mean, most believe Joseph was probably 17 or 18 years old. Mary was most likely 13 or 14 years old. 
They're engaged, and in their day, engagement was a legal contract. All of the hopes and dreams for their future lie before them. A family business, a house full of children. When some unusual circumstances changed everything. Mary was pregnant. The father was not Joseph, and so Joseph's going to divorce her quietly because he's a righteous man. But an angel appears and says, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he, he obeys the angel. And in obeying the angel, Joseph breaks the law. Because the Greek law, the Roman law, and the Jewish law all stated, demanded in fact, that a man should divorce his wife if she were guilty of adultery. Because see, Mary and Joseph lived in an honor-shame culture. And in honor-shame cultures, there are things that you did that would bring shame to your name. Not just your name, but your family name. And there were things that you did that would bring honor to not just your name, but your family name. And in Joseph and Mary's culture, family was anything. It was the sole source of your identity. But Joseph follows this, this path laid out by God. He takes Mary home. And in the ninth month of her pregnancy, a census is called for in Bethlehem. And so Joseph takes his, his now wife, Mary, who's nine months pregnant. Some say they walk. Some say he places her on a donkey. But regardless, the journey to Bethlehem was 90 miles 180 miles round trip. Can you imagine in your ninth month of pregnancy, you're riding on a donkey for 90 miles. They arrive in Bethlehem and the contractions start and there's no room anywhere. And I can see Mary glaring into the eyes of Joseph. What do you mean you didn't make a reservation? Like, this is not how it's supposed to be, right? This is a holy moment. This is the birth of God. When you're expecting your first child, there, there are these expectations you have in your head. When, when my wife and I were expecting our first child, Hannah, I had a vision of what the day was going to look like when she was born. I had it all planned out. I knew exactly what was going to happen. It was going to be glorious. And then nothing went according to the plan that I had. When my wife said, it's time, I took her to the hospital. We got there and we waited for hours. And they said, nah, it's not, you're just not quite ready. Go home. I'm like, no, 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 we're here. Nope, just you need to go home. You, you'll know. So we got home. And right around midnight, oh, we knew. Because I was awakened by a sound that I have never heard a human being make. And I sat straight up. I looked at her. She said, it's time. I stood up and then passed out. True story. When I was revived, took my pregnant wife, placed her in our vehicle. Now, to get to the hospital, we had to cross a railroad track. There was no other way. And we hit the railroad track about 1230. And when you know it, a train came by. And not only did a train came, come by, it stopped. And blocked everything. And I'm, now I'm freaking out. This is not what I saw in my head. Eventually they got to the hospital. And then there was alarms going off. And nurses 
running in and emergencies and NICU and all these things. It did not play out like I saw it in my head. I, I can't imagine that that the story of the birth of Jesus played out like Mary and Joseph saw it in their head. And yet, what we learn is that holy moments are not always perfect moments, at least on how we define perfection. And yet, the origin story of the Christian faith begins here, deeply rooted in Judaism and an expectation that a Messiah would come and it would be holy. Now, yes, Christmas past was rather unusual that God himself would be born and placed into the trough that is used to feed animals, sheep and goats. And yet this event inaugurates this new thing that God is up to. Because when we encounter God in the present, in this moment right now, who we encounter is Emmanuel, God with us. That name is so theologically significant because it shows us the nature and the character of our God. He's not a God above us. He's a God who is with us. Christ is present amongst us. And he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. With is a powerful idea. It's one thing to tell someone you're you're for them, you believe in them. But it's quite another thing to say, I'm I'm with you. Each week when my wife goes to Costco, she wants me to go with her. I think it's to lift all the heavy heavy stuff, but she says she just wants to be be with me. And when you think of those people that are truly with you, that gives you a sense of, of security. See, Christmas is a sacred day of God keeping his promise that he is indeed with you. Jesus said shortly before he ascended into heaven after the crucifixion in the gospel of Matthew chapter 28, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm with you always. See, Christmas is an assurance, an assurance of a hope-filled future. In the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which is a book that's often misunderstood and misinterpreted, in the very last section of that book, Revelation chapter 21, John the Apostle writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So the whole thing wraps up just like it began with God who is with us. See, the ultimate glory of heaven is not its physicality. It's God's withness. It's that God is with us. See, the whole arc of the Christian story is, is pointing towards something. Therefore, Christmas is not a standalone event. It is pointing towards a hope-filled future. I mean, when you envision your own future, what do you see? What do you think? What do you imagine? I mean, we're obsessed with the future, aren't we? 
Right now, according to statistics, 40% of us are currently worrying about the future. We worry about our goals and our vacations and our promotions and what's for dinner. We worry how much longer this guy's going to keep talking. I mean, we have all these worries. But what I know for certain is that our future is secure in Christ. And it's going to be okay. Even when it's not currently okay, it is going to be okay because our future is secure in him. I love how Charles Dickens ends his story. Scrooge awakens to learn that he has not missed it. He has not missed Christmas Day and there is this transformation in the midst of it. Dickens describes Scrooge's response like this. He wakes up in his room and he says, I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath. He was making a perfect lacoon of himself with his stockings. He said, I'm light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everyone. A happy new year to all the world. He then leans out his window and says to a boy in Sunday clothes, what day is it? What, what day is it today? And the boy looks at him rather confused and says, huh? what do you mean what day is it? My boy, what day is today? And the boy says, why, today is Christmas Day. Christmas Day, Scrooge said to himself, I haven't missed it. You haven't missed it. You haven't missed your life because Christmas shows us who we are. That we're the beloved of God. It's good news for all people. A God who came and identified with us. He knows us. And so on this Christmas as we close, may we, may we worship the God who holds the past, the present, and the future in the palm of his hand. Lord, you are the God of Christmas past, of Christmas present, and Christmas future. We are grateful that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and so we celebrate today. And now, O oh God, as we conclude with this familiar yet also simple song, O oh Holy Night, may this song serve as our prayer. Amen.